Darkly Splendid Abodes, the official podcast of Toronto Thelema, exploring, if you will, practical philosophy, from science and the workings of the mind to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. Stooping down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. Welcome to another Deep Dips, where we will be exploring a particular book more fully. This time we'll be dipping into Liber de Lege Libellum, which translates from the Latin as a little book on the law. It's a 25-page booklet that appears in the Blue Equinox, in which Crowley distills the law of Thelema and generalizes the approach to living and experiencing it fully. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. All right. Today we are looking at Liber 150, De Lege Libellum. And uh, this is a, uh, a short book that appears in the uh, Equinox 3.1, and it consists of five parts. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you for suggesting uh, this. I feel like maybe... I don't know if other people feel the same way, but f- for me, some of these shorter books seem kind of like like imminently ignorable. They seem like things that are sort of comfortably introductory because they're kind of bite-sized. But then often, because they're dense and difficult, if they're the first thing you read, you don't digest them right away either. And then because there are longer books, you know, like... Uh, there's there's uh, the holy book corpus and the more instructive papers and magic without tears and magic and theory and practice. Whenever I go back to something, I feel like I should go back to something. I, I hesitate to parse it this way, but this is really the way it happens in my mind. Go back to something like more serious mm-hmm. and ignore um, the shorter pieces. But this is great. Like this is really, really <laughs> helpful book. So it's and it's nice to be encouraged to go back to it. I think it's. I've realized that it's nice to have these bite-sized bits, uh, kind of for inspiration. The same way we have like Liberace to just do two minutes four times a day to just keep your toe in. Kind of mm-hmm. uh, Crowley says uh, to remind you constantly of the great work um, that. You know, if you're alone on an island and you only have half an hour, you know, between uh, coffee breaks or whatever to read one section of this. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm picturing a lonely island where coffee breaks are very frequent. There's still a Starbucks on every corner (laughs) and you really, they really don't like you to sit in there and read. So you have to get in, get your coffee and get out. (laughs) A desert island peopled with angry baristas. (laughs) (laughs) angry barista island great um no but that's the thing with this book you're absolutely right it's it's easily um underestimated um because it is so concise and it is that's the thing about it that it's distilled it's like the the theory of thelema distilled in a in a big way it's it's pretty much uh crowley taking all his thoughts all his perspective on on the 
Practice and Goal of Thelema, and just doing that in a very short book, and it's very handy to go back to. It can be actually so... He's using a flowery language in this book. Um, so it's... Uh, we were just talking earlier about when it was written, and I, I associate it with being around the time that he was spending time in America, and uh, it, it almost takes on the the language of Libra Left, where it's starting to bridge into this lofty kind of almost medieval... Um, dialect, but it's uh, it's not quite at that same level. But what that does do is that some of it's not as instantly um, clear on the first reading or on a cursory reading. I, I feel like because some of the turns of phrase are so beautiful and so memorable that you might get halfway down the first page and say like, oh yeah, I have read this. I know mm. what this and and I know what this is about and sort of shut down to the rest of it. I feel even after a week of sort of studying it as carefully as I could and taking lots of notes and stuff, I still feel there's a way in which I'm hovering above mm. the text. Um, and I think it's because I, I don't like it when people talk in the second person, but forgive me, I'm going to do this because I really do think it's generalizable and applicable to uh, you, dear listener. I think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That, that you have a certain number of preconceptions and a, a way in which you believe life is just organized. And when someone has a radically different perspective, radically different perspective, even a subtly different perspective, there's a distance between the reader and the text that makes you think you know what it means but this sense of having a complete, having completely integrated it remains remote. So like, oh, I know this paragraph and I know this paragraph and I've sort of investigated the definition of these words, but still the thrust of the piece can seem remote to you because it's based on assumptions that you don't share somehow. And I'm feeling that a lot with this. And I don't even know what it is that I disagree with, but there's <laughs> something about it that's making me feel um, that I haven't digested it. I, I think that's, you've hit it right on the head there because uh, this is, in a lot of ways, this is Crowley's philosophy naked. But like you say, you go in with your own preconceptions about things and it's easy to latch on to paragraphs here and there that you agree with and glance over other paragraphs. So doing this deeper reading that we've been doing in preparation for this uh, talk here, that's one of the things I like about this actually is it gives us a chance to actually really deeply engage with the material so that we're not just having a cursory glance. This is a very readable book. But how much of it you actually, like, having to engage with it paragraph by paragraph is a different story altogether than that first cursory reading. A lot of his perspective on things is not necessarily, like, I, I don't know if everyone's going to agree with every point. Personally, I resonate with a lot of what, uh, like, pretty much everything he's saying. But I can totally understand, for instance, um, where somebody diverges when he starts talking about what's clearly saying reincarnation is a thing. Mm -hmm. that, that might not be palatable to someone. Or teleology, with the idea that humans are essentially evolving towards some greater purpose. That may not be palatable. 
Well, there's cool. there's even more upsetting stuff in here. This idea that there's uh, no night of rape, which is not coeval with the creation of the universe. I forget how it's parsed. I mean, that word is uh, so sort of jarring and alienating mm-hmm. um, and then used in a context where it's talking about love between two individuals and the two individuals can be very different from each other there's a way in which you kind of hope that you know what he means by that or your mind starts racing to find some excuse for that mm-hmm. or some uh, some apologia uh, for the for the use of that term, and then, but uh, it's still, I think, remote and difficult to connect to and really apprehend, especially knowing like Crowley's sexual history as a you know a sadomasochist and a kind of. Uh, I mean, there are places where he uses the phrase uh, "heartily agree." When talking about sexual activity, all parties must heartily agree, mm-hmm. which uh, I think is uh, nice, almost nicer than consent, because like you give consent to have your data collected before you download an app you want. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you, you, don't can give, gr- you can agree. give reluctant consent, whereas heartily agree is like you don't heart you don't reluctantly heartily agree to something. <laughs> so that feels nice. But then there's also places in the confessions I know where. Uh, the ends justify the means, like the rape of the Sabine women is justified because the progeny there become the aristocrats that rule Rome for 1500 years. Um, uh, so it's only, so it's, he, he's soft on rape in a couple of places. And it's, it's a, it, it, they're, they're, like you said, there are things about the text which are um, specifically really alienating. Um, I don't think they always go to the substance of the text, but they're just like little jarring moments that make you go, oh, oh pick up. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the important thing about this text, though, is the fact that it distills down Crowley's philosophy as it pertains to the Book of the Law and Thelema um, in a very concise way. And in fact, it also, uh, it, not just the philosophy, but the practices, at least uh, in, if they're not if they're not reduced to literal exercises, they are at least generally systematized. I was surprised to see how much practice is really in here. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, one of the areas I think we should cover. Do you have anything else you want to say in terms of like general impression? I feel like we've been talking about it in sort of a meta way, talking about the experience of reading it. But what was your sort of first impression going back to it after i don't know how long it's been since you've looked at it before but how did it strike you this time it struck me uh again it's it really the important thing here is the way that we're engaging with it this time Mm -hmm. around because in in the past it's one of those books that i had just read through and not taken paragraph by paragraph so in in this reading for that reason it's much more there's so much to unpack there's a lot to unpack here so um it uh, i can see how he would have planned it out in terms of not only the goals of the uh the practitioner of thelema let's call it um uh, but the the actual exercises involved and he's broken that up into the four rays uh each attributed to a letter l which uh stands for either Liberty, love, life, or light. 
it's one of the first things that struck me is what a great companion piece this was to the Tao Te Ching, mm-hmm. um, because it does sort of the same thing where it starts with metaphysical principles and talking about how the universe of light, life, love, and liberty unfolds from the principle of the law, which is uh, will, so, sort of like a Schopenhauerian or like Nietzschean metaphysical will like a going that is the first cause of everything else and then that very quickly filters down into practice as you're saying uh we don't deal with administration so much the government piece is left out but conduct and meditation and uh yeah so in Lieber sorry in in the Doughty King we had metaphysics, conduct, governance, and practice. And here we have metaphysics, conduct, and practice. Uh, so it, it's very, um, very cool to be doing these back, by, back to back. Yeah, and the thalamicized perspective uh, of this uh, shows is really distinct from that, whereas the Doughty King was all about um, setting back and not moving and trying not to do so many actions to receive the information from the the Tao. Um, this, uh, which is good meditation advice, you know, wait. Uh, but this talks about a, a sort of a lust, a hunger, a going to unite with opposite principles to achieve, um, uh, to achieve the kind of a kind of oblivion, a, a union, mm-hmm. but uh, but this is the the difference in the the going versus condensing or or relaxing or receiving is is distinct. Yeah, and that's actually worth noting as well because the fact that we, uh, as I touched on, I think this was written around the same time as uh, Lieber Leff, uh, sometime during Crowley's time in America, and that's also the time that he did his translation of the Tao Te King. So uh, it it makes sense that it's kind of in the same frame of mind. It's at the same stage of his life. He's in the same state of mind, thinking very strongly in those terms of the Tao Te King. Okay. Do you want to start uh, going through it? Let's do that. So I think that of the three L's, um, law, light, life, love, and liberty, the preface talks about the law and sort of sets up... Um, oh, I should correct you there, because the uh, the law is like the fifth L. Oh, so okay. the law actually encompasses all the other four. They they go to make up the law. I think that's the way that it's conveyed in this preface. Oh, that's right, because the book is written backwards. So the four principles are light, life, love, and liberty. But then the first chapter is of liberty, which is the last of the four That's principles. It, yeah. so, and I think liberty is kind of a placeholder for the will. So light, life, love, liberty, and the law. You thought liberty was a placeholder for the will. Okay, That's the impression cool. I, I thought got. the law was the will. Um, and uh, that the liberty was, that it became sort of circular, where the, the idea of liberty is a fulfillment of the seed idea of the law that comes at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But you're seeing liberty and law as being, law as being sort of at, at the end. So we already have controversy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me um, uh, read this section then uh, from 
paragraph four of the preface, know first that from the law spring four rays or emanations. So that if the law be the, so that if the law be the center of your own being, they must needs fulfill you with their secret goodness. And these four are light, life, love, and liberty. So it sounds like what he's going to do is tell you how the four rays of secret goodness proceed from the fundamental principle of the law. At least that's how I'm reading it. Mm -hmm. But what he actually does, and it took me a long time to figure this out, what he actually does is start saying how light, life, love, and liberty are required in order to look back at the law. So light is what you see with, life is the principle Light, light is the principle of sight. Life is the thing that sees. Love gives an embellishment or a feeling. And liberty is required to do anything. And so these are the four principles that allow you to look back and discover the, the law. They work together in harmony um, to point you towards holiness. And you need all four um, to get at this fundamental principle of willing the the mystery of the law um, and you can do this sort of you can discover uh, fundamental principles by looking at what actually exists and working backwards to be like what would be the necessary and sufficient conditions for these things to come into being mm-hmm. uh, it's not clear to me that light life love and liberty could have not come in some other way than what he describes to say that oh these four are necessarily emanations of the law because and we know this because they're the tools we use to look at the law it seems like uh incomplete somehow uh there's not a really rigorous philosophical defense of that but that that is the structure of the argument to say that because these things point back uh, we know that they come from. Uh, do you disagree with that? You were thinking of the law as being anterior to the other four principles. Well, um, I would say that uh, what he's describing here as being, it does sound essentially like, okay, we have the law, and then these are four emanations, as he's putting it, so that's sort of like the law is the fountain of these four separate parts. Um I would say that it, this is almost like setting up a convention by which to view things uh, in order to systematize them. So that uh, I think he's probably intentionally breaking up the practices involved in this higher in these higher attainments, and as a result of that, he's realizing in the process of doing that that you can't fully separate each of these steps in the. Uh, the exercise process, they are necessarily working together and intrinsically tied together. They're not really separate ideas per se. It's just that we conceptualize them as separate in order to make them workable. But we need to keep it in mind that they are different facets of the same process, essentially. So I, to me, it feels like this is essentially setting up a convention to work with rather than saying literally like uh, in the same way that you might describe the tree of life as being the Sephiroth and the Sephiroth make up the universe. So where are the Sephiroth? What, where is each individual Sephiroth? It's easy to get a little bit hung up on the idea of these separate 
entities existing as discrete units of some sort. Um, so I feel like that's one of the thing. That's what comes to my mind is is uh, not holding it too tightly, having a slightly loose grasp so that we can. Uh, and that's what I feel like he's describing by saying um, they are they are one, and we use all four of them, even though uh, we are looking at one at a time and that sort of thing. That's the impression I have. Um, yes, you're right. Crowley's metaphysics exists, sort of the world is a reconciled zero, right? There's the, there's the nothing, and this book will talk a lot about how to get back to nothing using practices, uniting uh, the dualistic principles, the self and the, the not-self. Um, so there is, uh, uh, he, he'll talk about unity in this a few times, but it's not a monist unity, it's the bringing together two things that leads to oblivion. So there is, um, and Crowley being anti-rationalist, you know, you want to be careful about putting too much faith in models. So maybe that's why uh, he doesn't feel the need to defend this too rigorously because, you know, you're setting up a model so that you have some basis for understanding. But the, it would be, false to think of that as too um as too real yeah i think um that by reference to the doughty king though um it is interesting to think of if if the law is will you know do what the will shall be the whole of the law um that this willing is a fundamental principle um uh light is this nebulous thing almost like the Tao or the day that allows you to observe um, uh, the law and then life springs from light just because it's needed. Um, the tool wants a user. So the, the tool of the light generates life out of necessity. And I think there was one thing that I wanted to read here that now I can't find. There's... Um, Oh, yes. I have already written to you of how, in the will of love, light ariseth as a secret part of life. These qualities are become part of the universal life, which proceedeth infinitely with the enjoyment of the will, and of love as inherent therein. These things, therefore, in their perfection have lost their names and their natures, yet these were the substance of life, its father and mother, and without their operation and impact, life itself would gradually cease its pulsations. So I just wanted to mention that, uh, and I don't think we should do too much of this like com comparison between the texts, but last time we did talk about, um, we did read that section about how unmanifested is their, it is the father of heaven and earth and manifested is their mother. Here we have um, the the light, life, love, and liberty, and relating somehow to will and becoming the substance of life, its father and mother. So I mm -hmm. thought that was... Yeah, that's an interesting correlation that probably we would never have noticed otherwise. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, it, it also brings to mind that whole idea of like, uh, again, thinking of it in terms of uh, physical sciences, uh, the idea of the... Uh, the 
forces, like the uh, uh, strong and weak forces at, I think, going back to the beginning of the universe, they kind of combine so that they're they're not distinguished as separate forces. Mm -hmm. So it kind of reminds me of that kind of a concept for what that's worth. That may not be, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. That's just sort of one of those, you know. <laughs> yes. Well, you're right that in comparing it to other types of, um, uh, of metaphysics and, and thinking about the relationships of these, how these forces emerge and, and come into the world and, uh, and what that picture looks like, what's primary and what steps down from what and for what reason. Uh, tell me something about liberty, Darren. Well, liberty. This is where we uh, set out upon the path, and we uh, we first encounter our our exercises as they pertain to Thelema um, and uh, this path of return, so to speak. One thing that was kind of interesting to me: it talks about if you are sure of your will and sure of your means, and this brings to mind the uh, introduction to magic and theory and practice. And this may be, uh, I don't know if this is going to be problematic trying to compare too many texts to this, but this is uh, touching on his overarching philosophy in general and the practical aspects of it, which is really important to this liberty portion. In the, in the chapter on liberty, I guess I should uh, uh, introduce it as well. We are talking about discipline and discipline of focus focusing the mind focusing uh finding your will understanding what your will is both your personal will in terms of what you're doing here in this lifetime and your more overarching will uh for which reason he brings into uh he introduces the idea of life as being this ongoing serpentine this is in this chapter, right? That's right. Uh, oh, the serpentine thing, I think, comes uh, later, but you can sort of mention it now. Uh, so the reason uh, the chapter on liberty is uh, seemingly about bondage is that the greatest of all bonds is ignorance. Uh, so he starts out saying that you need liberty uh, in order to express the law because the law is willing, the law is the law of freedom, um, and you can't do that without liberty, so liberty is obviously a necessity. And liberty is the the ability to act. Yeah, and uh, but the but because the greatest of all bonds of is ignorance, uh, and people don't know um, if if people don't know what their will is, what thing they really should be doing in any moment, then they're unable to act correctly and often even to act at all. You know, this idea of uh, decision paralysis, being overwhelmed with uh, infinite choice. So I just wanted to say that before what you were, uh, what you were going about how, how um, the, the rigor and self-discipline mm -hmm. and self-interrogation, uh, because this is, this is why that chapter, this chapter becomes about that. Mm -hmm, so anyway, so what were you going to say? Yeah, essentially, uh, um, we are uh, directed to uh, basically figure out where we are, what's going on, and what our trajectory is. That's essentially what this is about. Mm -hmm. uh, so figuring out what your will is, is a bit, it, it is a tall order, but it is the first order of business to set out on that, 
that path. I don't know if that's something you do in a weekend, but it's <laughs> it's like something that you start doing. Uh, and um, it's interesting because he does mention the idea of the personal will, and he does list a few things that sound like jobs. And this is <laughs> one of those things that I like to break away from the idea of uh, encapsulating your true will. Well, I, I guess the true will being a higher overarching thing. So this is the personal will, but trying to encapsulate your will as being what you do for a living seems like uh, it can be a little bit uh, misleading in a lot of ways to me. But here he's stating that as an important or or as an example of uh, one interpretation of that. So I think this is really where that that interpretation comes from and people tend to run with because this is one of the ways that people do talk about will in Thelema. Well, so the aligning of the personal will with the divine will, I think, is uh, where true will sort of originates. I mean, where true will sort of comes into the picture. This is why he's talking about um, uh, these practices. For example, in our holy books are given sundry means of making this discovery, i.e. which star of all stars you are. So by studying the holy books, you get some of these practices that will um, teach you uh, who you are, what you're doing, where you're going. Uh, whether or not this is something you do in a weekend, I think it's probably something that you begin doing one weekend and then carry on through the whole um, course of your life. And so thinking of it as being a career, right? The career of the mm. magician is not, um, is not wrong. And like if we spend eight hours a day sleeping and eight hours a day at work, you know, another hour and a half commuting or whatever it is, then I think what job you choose really is important, but it's not everything the will needs to the, the formula of the true will needs to filter down through all every action of your life, and he will talk about that later here. Um, another interesting clue here in, uh, I, I seem to love the fourth paragraph of these, in paragraph four of this <laughs> section, understand now that in yourself is a certain discontent, analyze well its nature, at the end is every case one conclusion. So the anxieties that you come up against in your life uh, are clues to um, to the formula of your true will by correcting these um, disordered conditions you get closer and closer to living a life that's more in line with uh, your true course through the heavens the metaphor of stars is used here and is everywhere in Thelema um, and here's a formula for remedying the ill. Ill springs from the belief in two things, self and not self, and the conflict between them. This also is a restriction of the will. He who is sick is in conflict with his own body. He who is poor is at odds with society, and so for the rest. Ultimately, therefore, the problem is how to destroy this perception of duality, to attain the apprehension of unity. And this is going to uh, jar some people the wrong way, you know, like, what if I'm born into bad circumstances or, uh, you know, if, if society is against me in some way. And to that, I want to say that, like, if you're doing so sociology, of course, the society is always the problem, you know. So um, you're right if you're a person in vulnerable circumstances that it's not your fault you're there. 
But if you're doing therapy, the responsibility is always with the individual being therapized to come to term with their circumstances. So what's being said here, is, you know, if there's a perceived difference between myself and my society, and, you know, I feel uh, put upon, uh, you might actually be put upon, but your responsibility is still your own to navigate uh, those circumstances and find a place within civilization where you can maximize uh, personal potential. And the reason it's your responsibility is only because you can't assume anyone else is going to do it for you. You know. This is a common uh, <laughs> issue that comes up for sure because it's, uh, I mean, just through it, like different ways of philosophizing the subject of the difficulties going through, through in life and that sort of thing. I mean, yeah, this is uh, one perspective on it. Uh, a lot of people do try to, I've even seen like things where people were trying to say if somebody's causing you problems in your life, you should thank them because they are um, providing you with the ability to continue to advance in your own life. And it's like, well, let's, you know, calm ourselves here. <laughs> <laughs> Just because you can learn something from adversity doesn't mean that you should be thanking bullies that are tor tormenting you, you know? It's, <laughs> it's not quite that cut and dry, and it's not really going to do you any real favors. And, you know, you're, it's gonna, there's going to be different planes, and that's sort of like mixing the planes in a sense. Uh, that's right. I find, I, I discovered in reading this text that I don't know what is meant by planes. I, I know that there is an astral plane, and that that's distinct from the material plane. And I always thought just assumed that there was an expansion of that idea. And I would bring in the idea of four worlds and think about how, you know, there's a world of gods and angels and uh, manifest beings and so forth. Um, but to talk about the interplay of planes and to avoid, uh, when you're meditating on one object, to avoid interference from not other objects, but other planes, but that your work on one object should be so profound as to have resonance into other planes. I think I realized that I was sort of guessing what that meant or allowing my abstraction to substitute for a definition. I'm very glad that you're bringing that up because it's one of those things that it's easy to take for granted and mm -hmm. throw around. Like I'm using it essentially as a turn of phrase to some extent. Uh, at the same time, I'm using it in the way that I understand it, which um, just to uh, compare notes, I'm going to my way of understanding it is you have, for instance, the physical plane, um, the way that you would interact with people and things on the physical plane in your daily life versus the way that you interact with things on the uh mental plane or if you're dealing with spirits the way that you would interact with spirits uh, and the idea of mixing the planes being that uh, just because you will be doing things while in a ritual or in a meditative state and it is the right way to deal with things doesn't mean that you bring that into the physical world so that's kind of where I'm coming from with the idea of mixing the planes and in this analogy of like this bully um, the idea that, okay, I can learn something from this situation that can be completely valid and, uh, effective. You can certainly learn something from that situation and, uh, you can certainly grow from that situation. But then to say that this bully is giving me something and I should thank them 
uh, rather than dealing with that situation uh, in terms that are actually going to resolve that situation in its own context and on its own terms, that is kind of like mixing the planes in that sense in my mind. So individuals have personal responsibility for their own circumstances on the individual plane. And, uh, and so because people have profound responsibility to themselves, uh, one might imagine that on a governmental plane, for example, you're absolved of any responsibility to your citizenry because individuals have profound individual responsibility to themselves. And that would be a confusion of the plane because government just is service in at least in Thelema government is nothing but service so it so so on a governmental plane the principles might be different you don't mm-hmm. uh, you you can still worry about taking care of people when you're governing large numbers of people uh, their individual responsibility doesn't doesn't absolve you of your responsibility to them for example yeah just like the idea that if you are being victimized it's not right to blame the victim. However, the victim still has to make uh, choices in order to protect themselves and that sort of thing as well. So it's not, you know, it's not a cut and dry one or the other kind of situation. There are you're seeing this idea of planes as not just as not only literal planes, a material plane, an astral plane, mm-hmm. uh, a heaven and hell, but also as uh, something that can be applied universally to individual spheres, social spheres, governmental spheres. Uh, and uh, I can argue for the fact that uh, I think that these different planes, as you've just described them, uh, do manifest in the mind and do therefore manifest as astral planes, so to speak, as well. Because I think there is a correlation between those things. This is something um, that I think is fun to talk about. I don't know it's getting if we get a definition, topic. if we get these definitions from reading the text. That's true, yeah. So bringing it back around. <laughs> uh, so we, got, we had dealt with uh, why the first need is freedom and why willing takes work. Um, and I had I had said the next little section of, of chapter one was uh, that freedom means constraining yourself to tasks of the will. So in our holiest book, it is written, thou hast no right but to do thy will. Do that and no other shall say nay. Write this also upon your heart and in your brain, for it is the key to the whole matter. Here nature herself be your preacher. For in every phenomenon of force and motion doth she proclaim aloud this truth, even in so small a matter as driving a nail into a plank. Here is the same sermon. Your nail must be hard, smooth, fine-pointed, or, or it will not move swiftly in the direction willed. Imagine then a nail of tinderwood with twenty points. It is verily no longer a nail, yet all mankind are like this. They wish a dozen different careers, and the force which might have been sufficient to attain eminence in one is wasted on all the others, and they are null. So this is uh, a really beautiful illustration, I think. I like to imagine this will, this nail mm. of tinderwood with 20 points and what a, such an object might look like. And uh, it's the uh, elucidation of a, of, of a previous suggestion that, like, if you're ignorant of the correct action, then 
even though you may be able to take some action, actions nullify each other by their disorderliness. So to find some some sort of code of of conduct is becomes important. It's a really nice image, and uh, it is again just distilling the idea that we are figuring out. Uh, you figure out who you are, what's going on, and what your trajectory is, and what your trajectory should be or how you can refine your trajectory and you do that by simplifying and this is actually this simplification this idea of simplifying things is going to come up throughout this text and seems to be a very important part of his philosophy as well reducing things to their simplest points here's something else i think we should look at uh just briefly even though it is brief i think it's uh i think it's interesting if therefore the master should enjoin upon you a vow of holy obedience compliance is not a surrender of the will but a fulfillment thereof um so this is so radical this thing about ignorance this thing about the disordered mind the people preconceiving instead of knowing based on analysis what it is that they are um, that it is even appropriate to give up your right to make decisions for yourself if you find a guru who is a real honest teacher and you're on your own to figure out what that means uh there's there's no help in identifying <laughs> these people uh but if some if if it strikes you this relationship between the student and the master then it becomes necessary to follow that out you, you know you're not you're not surrendering your personal will by surrendering your ability to make decisions uh the the master is teaching you what your will is this is one of those phrases that uh, sticks at me personally. I, you know, I have my thing about uh, the idea of the guru and that sort of thing. So uh, m my natural reaction is to psychologize Crowley and try to picture why, what his motivations in this are for his personal um, motivations and that sort of thing. And I'm speaking purely from my reaction. So I'm not arguing this. I'm saying this is how I react mm -hmm. to it. And I'm acknowledging the fact that I have that reaction to it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people do. They, um, especially this culture, old thing of Western people being interested in yoga, maybe going to India to try to find their guru, but they haven't fully digested Vedantic metaphysics or, or rules of conduct they don't know that the goal of certain types of meditation practice is not to exist anymore hmm. so like if your guru gives you too many psychedelic drugs and you die then they've done their job correctly <laughs> to a certain degree <laughs> um uh, because you know you've uh, you've had the experience of disconnecting with your ego self and you've died. You've moved on to your next incarnation, having had that experience. Uh, and for uh, Western people, this might be thought of as abuse, uh, whereas the guru might might be just doing serving, fulfilling his function <laughs> as, as a guru. And uh, and, and so it can be very challenging for people to come up against. Um, but I think one of the ways in which this is really helpful is that for people coming into Thelema, to let Thelema be 
de Lima, read the books, understand the books, know what they mean, even the scary parts, because that's where you're going to find uh, the most useful nuggets, as we'll learn here later on, <laughs> uh, that the, 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 the dangerous and most alienating things are... Um, the things which you can have a most the most radical union with because they they're they're the most difficult to integrate so you know if when people start reading crowley and allowing themselves to skirt around certain paragraphs because of their preconceptions or because of their just grossed out by stuff or or, or whatever um, they're missing this point that you do spiritual practice to be changed you don't come in. You don't come in wanting to change a spiritual practice. I get geeked out by people who say like, "Oh, I resonate with this profoundly," or something like that. And it's like that's not really the point. The point is to change your resonance. <laughs> I get what you're saying, man. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do at least one more thing before we leave this section. And move on to of love. Uh, this then is the law of liberty. You possess all liberty in your own right, but you must buttress right with might. You must win freedom for yourself in many a war. Woe unto the children who sleep in the freedom that their forefathers won for them. There is no law beyond do what thou wilt, but it is only the greatest of the race who have the strength and courage to obey it. Which gets uh, overlooked by a lot of people who in the Thelemic community, I think. Yeah, um, this... Is, is the fulfillment of some of the stuff we've been talking about in terms of, you know, laziness doesn't help, self-discipline is, is mandatory, constraining yourself to a single course of action uh, results in more success than sort of, I, what I said last week, pissing around, kind <laughs> of, uh, you know, taking things as they come. So... While we believe that everyone has freedom, here again, this is the example of, which I, I, I don't know how to evaluate whether it's right or not, but as, as you talk about the planes, um, from the perspective of, of governance, for example, we might believe that every individual has freedom, which is a thing that's important for Thelemites and that we should defend the freedom of individuals. Um, but then on an individual level, we have this responsibility and it is only the greatest of the race who have the strength and the courage to obey, uh, the law of freedom. So we end up having to defend the freedom of people to make bad decisions. And there's no contradiction in that because as you sort of say, the two different principles are operating on two different planes. And on the, mm. from the individual perspective, you know, you're, you're totally free to make bad decisions. And then from the governmental perspective, uh, I believe in your freedom. So I have to <laughs> rapidly defend that idea. <laughs> uh, another thing that might, people might balk at is this use of the word race. It's a loaded word. Uh, and Crowley does have uh, perhaps some problematic views on race. Or <laughs> um, I don't think it's pertaining to an individual race within humanity, but to humanity Yes, itself. this is the, the, human, the human race, if you want to say that here. Similarly, he, I mean, right after that, oh man, behold thyself. I mean, he's constantly referring to oh man, or, you know, to men, uh, re refers to the human race as 
men see things this way or that sort of thing. This is just, uh, I mean, I think this is something we can delineate as essentially the equivalent of a neuter generalized term. Yeah, English just does employ a gender-neutral ma uh, masculine, and uh, uh, you don't have to like that, but that's the; those are the facts of the case at hand. <laughs> in fact, um, uh, in an older form of the language, man was gender-neutral, and uh, there was a preface like woo for woman that was used to delineate a masculine man. So hmm. man is the neuter term. So if you want to use neuter language, everyone is a man. <laughs> uh, I think it's something like O-man <laughs> for male and, and, uh, uh. and woo-man for uh, women. S say something about love. Well, when it comes to love, right off the hop, he's relating this to Will. And this type of love that he's speaking of is encompassing universal ideas about love rather than simple individual ideas about love, although it also covers that as well. So this is uh, really all about this concept of union again. It's bringing it right back to that. It seems like the definition of love, and correct me if you have a different uh, uh, point of view on this, but it's, it's really about the idea that we are in sorrow because of the sense of individuality, the, f the separateness of, of the self and the other. So love is really tied up in the idea of destroying that experience of separateness by unifying with pretty much anything. And literally anything, because he's talking about how it's not just the love between two people. It's the love that a person can have for any object whatsoever, that it becomes the point of focus. But now I would have you know that in the mind are no such limitations in respect of species as prevent a man from falling in love with an inanimate object or an idea. For to him that is in any wise advance upon the way of meditation, it appears that all objects save the one object are distasteful, even as appeared formerly in respect of his chance wishes to the will. <laughs> the interesting thing I find about this, this sort of stuff is that uh, um, even when it comes to the love between two people, I've always had a difficult time with the way that people talk about love and their understanding of love and that sort of thing because i think a lot of it comes from convention culture those types of things and people themselves i'm not convinced have a full understanding of what they mean by love and uh, their expectations of it and that sort of thing and how those things are tied up with culture and the like because here it's really uh getting to the root of um what i feel like is important is no love is completely satisfactory when it's one separate thing. Uh, this is the hope, anyway. Um, where's this... Uh, I didn't mark this off as something to read, uh, but maybe I will. Oh, I can't find it. But mediocre men uh, mate with uh, null women... Where, as um, uh, great uh, people seek out 
monsters and uh, uh, even as regard to gender and species. Uh, so while, you know, the captain of the football team, who is a great guy on a small town level, uh, you know, really pillar of the community, uh, might marry the head cheerleader and then just remember high school for their whole lives, have no more <laughs> great achievements. Uh, whereas a truly great person will have sex with homosexual rhinoceros <laughs> because of the thirst to unite with the opposite of them. <laughs> or just something so yeah, yeah, yeah. so different from the self. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's always a hunger to, um, uh, to discover something radical, something different, something alien. Uh, there's a, a striving towards difference. A, a, maybe it's a curiosity or something that pushes people out from the self. Um, and this this love is defined in Thelema. I'm trying to find a quote from this text that says it, because uh, I think there's probably something in here. Um, oh, here we are. Here also is nature monitor to them that seek wisdom at her breast. For the uniting of elements of opposite polarities is there a glory of heat, of light, and of electricity. It sounds like he's talking about a chemical reaction, but I think what he might mean is like opposite polarities, like uh, negatively and positively charged elements mm -hmm. of the same type, how there's a spark when they come together, a literal spark of, of heat, light, and electricity, that love is, from a Thelemic perspective, is, is the hunger to unite with uh, another being. Um, so the sexual act is an act of love, marriage is an act of love, um, uh, but also like murder and consumption, like if you eat meat, that's an act of love or like uh, the, the, the combining of two things uh, and the creation of, of something new or the destruction of both things in the union M more correctly. That's the definite, that's the definition of, uh, of love. So, and the greater the ecstasy that can be created by that union, the, the, the more dif the more diasporate the two elements are. Yes. And that's, I'm wondering with this, because he's talking about this in, it seems very strongly terms of like abhorrence, uh, like the abhorrence itself leads to a greater ecstasy. And I'm wondering how literal that should be taken or if it should be, uh, allowed some leeway or if it's um, it's partly just his uh it has to be considered like if that's his experience of it and his way of parsing it and perhaps that's different for different people well we know from the biography that um crowley took this as advice on conduct mm -hmm. um he was uh looking actively for things that would be uncomfortable scary dangerous uh horrible gruesome and then doing them on purpose so like many of the many of the the horrible things that you would see from crowley and be alienated by he did those things because he felt alienated by them i think to yeah, a large specifically degree. for that purpose um but how it's written in here is kind of as meditation advice um 
all objects must be grasped by the mind and heated in the sevenfold furnace of love until with an explosion of ecstasy they unite and disappear, for they being imperfect are destroyed utterly in the creation of the perfection of union, even as the person of the lover and the beloved are fused into one spiritual gold of love, which knoweth no person but comprehendeth all." Yet, since each star is but one star, and the coming together of any two is but one partial rapture, so must the aspirant to our holy science and art increase constantly by this method of assimilating ideas, that in the end become capable of apprehending the universe in one thought, he may leap forth upon it with the massive violence of his self, and destroying both of these, become the unity whose name is no thing." Um, so that's important. Meditating in bits and pieces, it'll say later on things that are both appealing and unappealing to expand, uh, the domain of the self until you're perhaps a complete microcosm such as that you can unite with your own universe in, uh, a, a, a pure way that allows for some samadhi to take place, allows for the obliteration of the individual consciousness. And this is a very important point of Thelemic doctrine uh, that I think uh, deserves to be pointed out because of the fact that uh, what we're seeing here is adding to the self by love and unification with all the elements of the universe, uh, whether difficult or comfortable or pleasing or abhorrent, all parts of the universe are gradually being added to the self until the self is coterminous with the universe, so to speak. And um, that whole idea earlier about individuality, where it's like the self, by one of the things he talks about is is uh, by simplifying every single idea that you're focusing on, so that you're reducing it to its element, its principal elements, and then you come to realize that every given thing is equal to any other thing in relation to the self. You realize that the self itself, and the, the big difference is that the self is essentially nothing. And there's this other thing that seems separate from the self. So by gra finally having that leaping upon the universe, that's where I think that's kind of an interesting thing to talk about that whole idea of no thing. But let's not get too off topic <laughs> the important thing being that this is an important element of thelemic doctrine this idea of continuously adding to the self and uh, it's an important thing to keep in mind because of the fact that there is a big difference between that and other doctrines which tend to separate the self in some way like for instance uh, i know that like luciferianism is uh more about fortifying the self and uh I can't speak to it really strongly, but there's an important doctrinal difference there. Right. And also um, a doctrinal difference between the zero equals two of Thelema and the monism of the Vedantic perspective or certain esoteric Christian schools where, you know, fundamentally there's one truth and then maybe trinitarian or expressed as a creator creature distinction but eventually you know there's sort of one god here in 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 Thelema, there's a, a real distinct self not self dualism 
the way you're saying with Satanism, where the self is fortified and everything else is not the self, but with the goal of destroying both. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you can't ever get to the place of realizing monism because the 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 not self obliterates the self upon being realized. Mm-hmm. Uh, this you're reading this as if it's meditation advice, and I I did too, and I think that that's right. But right in the first no, in the second uh, paragraph of this section. Now love is the enkindling and ecstasy of two that will to become one. It is thus a universal formula of high magic. Uh, so he's speaking this in terms of magical operations. Uh, so w- while the instruction makes it seem like you're talking about a Dorana exercise where you imagine a shape, try to exclude all other thoughts, eventually uh, you become one with the shape or, or the shape disappears and you attain this kind of dhyana, this kind of mindless unification, this kind of... Uh, but um, there's also in, in Thelema a corpus of work with gods and, and goddesses and angels and demons and intelligences and other people. Um, the note, in the notes on an astral atlas, it says that there's always a slight pang of pain in any real first-class astral vision because it hurts the self to recognize the existence of a not-self. So meditation is important to the degree that it strengthens the mind, and a a big, big goal of samadhi is a meditative goal. Uh, Samadhi is something that happens in meditation. Uh, But there's also a way in which we're talking about, um, when we're talking about uniting with a, a remote object, calling up a demon that actually is a demon that maybe by its virtue of a demon disgusts or frightens the operator and then doing a little bit of business with it where you trade favors for work (laughs) and get the demon to obey you. This expands the domain of your power, strengthens and clarifies things about the individual operator, but also, um, uh, but also allows there to be a self, not self distinction that means that ultimate ecstasy can take place. There's something else in which against you bump up eventually. That's a very good point. Um, here we are. Here's uh, uh, paragraph 12. Let him also practice an art of the analysis of ideas, uh, refusing to allow the mind its natural reaction to them, fixing himself in simplicity and indifference. But each idea will possess one special quality common to them all. That is, no one of any of them is the true self, as much as it is perceived by the self as something opposite. So, uh, like you, what you were saying here before about the meditation advice, the dharana, um, you can't be disgusted by the object of your meditation or attracted to the object of the meditation you try to cultivate a sense of simplicity and indifference a remoteness from the object of your meditation uh whatever it is um whether it's something beautiful or or revulsive and by getting many different objects to a place where they're neuter you recognize the similarity in those objects and this similarity is sort of a not self principle and so by regarding you know 
arose uh, with simplicity and indifference by regarding a corpse with simplicity and indifference by regarding some uh, sexually uh, attractive object with simplicity or indifference. Um, the, the, the thing about those things that is, is fundamental is this not selfness. And the more different objects you resolve with simplicity and indifference, the more this principle of not selfness comes to light somehow. Uh, and this is, again, another important aspect of Crowley's philosophy, which I would say probably comes from his Buddhist background, the idea of unattachment, non-attachment, uh, being able to distance yourself from simple reactions and emotional reactions and, and that sort of thing. Like uh, he also references the Buddhist meditations on the self, on your, on your own corpse in various different um, states of decay and whatnot. Yeah, but here it's not about not existing, as I think that it is in Buddhism where you become non-attached to your life, in, in a way, this is on a on a different plane specific to the meditation, specifically to do with like realizing I am this thing, which is distinct from this mm -hmm. other uh, thing. It's uh, essentially an observer in not, a way we're, we're expanding uh, the idea of the self by comparing it to all of these different not selves somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, such that we can ultimately get to that fiery union of ecstasy. Oh, I didn't mark out any quotations here, but I wonder if we should say something about purity and love. Because hmm. um, it is, there's about four paragraphs dedicated to it. Um, and to me, it seems maybe obvious that uh, purity and love is s sort of. I mean, it's part of this meditation advice of allowing the thing to be the thing and to aspire to that thing and to love that thing and to... Is this where it mentions planes, too? Not to let any... Uh, mm -hmm. any. Yeah, here it is. I'll read this thing on planes just because uh, we mentioned it earlier. For though each act is to be complete on its own plane and no influence of any other plane is to be brought in for interference or admixture, for such is all impurity. Yet each act should be in itself so complete and perfect that it is a mirror of the perfection of every other plane, and thereby becometh a partaker of pure light of the highest. So what's important, and I'll, I'll come back to the quotation later, but what's important in the section on purity is not that there's any imposition of any moral prescription. Purity doctrine in cults and in other sorts of religions can be quite uh, destructive because um, it can create these sorts of psychological complexes. It can create these sorts of complexes that remove the individual from the self. It's sort of the opposite of the exploring and expanding thing that Crowley wants you to be able to do. Integrate these different parts of your psyche, these different objects of the universe, whereas, you know, like, I won't 
lay with a woman while she's on the period on her period and if i do i'll go wash myself in the river being be unclean for seven days or whatever it says in deuteronomy um these are denying an aspect of life uh and so purity and love does not include these ideas of of moral or social impurity uh, of of the you know that certain certain things are disgusting and certain things are not disgusting it's a it's a wholeheartedness uh wholehearted approach to whatever the object is it seems uh, like another simplifying down to stripping it down to its essence rather than having any kind of extra excrescences or anything like that stuck to it yeah um so like and and he does say that the that human relationships can be uh, a guide here that that you know when you're with your spouse you want to be with your spouse and not allow extraneous thoughts to intrude um even if you're uh in a polyamorous relationship where you may have other partners as, as Crowley tended to date more than one person at a time uh he very rarely indulged in orgies even though he calls sex orgiastic he was never sort of having sex with more than one person at one time. The whole focus was on the romance or the, the violence, frankly, between, <laughs> between the two individuals rather than allowing extraneous things to come into play. And the, the, the way in which people are most fulfilled by sex in this kind of one-to-one intimate for-each-other uh, way shows us that uh, what our attitude to Light, to meditation and to life should should be that when we're when we show up we show up mm-hmm. you know you're fully present for it yeah it also means don't allow other thoughts into your meditation because that's not what meditating is but the in terms of conduct this sort of thing of being grossed out by other people or other things or, or, you know. And that's why we have this structured in the way that it's structured as well, because this is, this does go hand in hand with the idea of liberty where we had to practice focus, but liberty had to come first to be addressed. I mean, we need to be able to concentrate on focus in order to exercise purity and love. Uh, I'm getting, I'm... (laughs) I was going to say, I'm going to give you one of the, I was going to say, I'm going to give you the last word on that because that was nice, which covertly gives me the last word on that. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving this in. Siestale and diastole are the phases of all component things. Of such also is the life of man. Its curve arises from the latency of a fertilized ovum, say you, to a zenith whence it declines to nullify in death. Rightly considered, this is not the whole truth. The life of man is but one segment of a serpentine curve which reaches out into infinity. Uh, I looked up this thing of systole and diastole. It sounds like a kind of cool, magical turn of phrase uh, <laughs> until you get into your 40s like I am and start <laughs> to, to, to realize a few things about how life works. Um, systole and diastole, uh, there's a contraction and a release and... Every reference I found was specifically in relation to a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. That's a systolic blood pressure was your blood pressure when your heart was contracting. And obviously when fluid is being pushed out from the heart, there's more pressure in the system than there is when uh, the 
muscle is relaxing to allow blood back in. So your diastolic blood pressure is at that low point in the system. So, uh, so, you know, when you see your blood pressure is 120 over 80 or 125 over 92 or whatever, (laughs) (laughs) um, uh, that's, that's what it means is there's a systolic and a diastolic. Um, and, uh, so this idea that there's a, a, a squeezing and a release in the universe, in life, uh, and the, the squeezing is not just like a stress contraction, but it's the squeezing that pushes out the energetic uh, principle. And so, uh, it, like you're saying, this is where we talk about uh, reincarnation as well. The, the, the metaphor here is that that sort of birth is systolic and death is diastolic and but the blood is all still it's funny because i think i uh i'd probably looked that up the first time reading through this book but uh more recently going over this i coincidentally was listening to some latin language podcast that was on medical Mm -hmm. subject matter and the guy happened to be talking about that subject (laughs) and so it was like what are the odds like i've never heard any (laughs) i've never heard that come up in any other latin podcast before anything like that but it just coincidentally came up now but it's a really apt imagery for this um particularly that releasing uh for the if you want to call it the afterlife and the I mean, even if you have trouble, I think a lot of people have trouble with the idea of reincarnation, but it seems to me that Crowley did take reincarnation for granted to some extent. How he interpreted that is questionable. He did talk about, like here it goes on to discuss different methods for attaining the so-called magical memory, which is memory of past lives. But when Crowley talks about these memories of past lives, he does point out that it's not really that important if we take it literally. The important thing is that you learn something about yourself by exploring these ideas or experiences. Uh, So, uh, what maketh then a man, if he dieth and is reborn, a changeling with each breath? This, the consciousness of continuity given by memory, the conception of his self as something whose existence, far from being threatened by these changes, is verily assured by them. So this is something that there's been like some real philosophical work done on. You know, we, we intuitively, you know, like we know that a seven-year-old is different than a 40-year-old. Their values are different. Their interests are different. Um, their uh, behavior is different. Their understanding of the universe is radically different. Um, but if the seven-year-old is, you know, quote-unquote, the same person as the 40-year-old, we want to think of the identity principle as as holding. We don't want to say that I was a different person when I was seven than I am now. I mean, we may use that euphemistically, but we don't literally mean that I'm that, that I am a new being that wasn't existent when I was seven. So uh, we say, like, okay, bodily, you know, like, even though our values and our ideas and our conceptions may have changed, uh, bodily, we have the same being. But that's not really true, too, because the oldest cell in your body is something like seven years old. So there's a complete, you, you are a completely physically different person than you were when you were seven. So, uh, one of the ways in which this is parsed is about the chain of 
of of memories, the chain of ideas. So even though my values at seven are not my values now, I can see uh, a sort of genealogy of the events that happened to me in my life that caused those values to change. And the way this is refuted is by saying that like, okay, but if you go to sleep or if you go into a coma or if you get Alzheimer's, you still want to say the identity principle holds even though that chain of causes, that chain of uh, ideas is, is broken. But Crowley's going to use this chain of ideas principle, this chain of memory, as, the, um, as, as being his identity principle. Okay? So if you develop a magical memory, if you use his techniques to go back and remember things that happened to you before you were born or remember things that happened to other people, there's this philosophical there's this interesting philosophical thing that comes up is like okay if if my identity includes these things which you might want to say are false memories but our identity principle is based on a chain of memory and my chain of memory includes uh, these things then um, reincarnation the idea of a life which extends beyond the boundaries of your own life uh, just like that is philosophically true then. This is why when he does his magical memory, he doesn't just do a past life regression. He goes back through pre-birth to the womb to preconception and through all the uh, memories that happen between his previous death and his new, new birth, you know? Like you're supposed to think backwards like that because that creates the chain of ideas necessary to have an identity that goes from another person's life into your own life, whether or not there's a, um, a material truth in that at all. And I should point out, uh, or we should point out that, uh, what you're talking about in terms of this regressive way of retrieving these memories isn't actually referred to in this text except indirectly. Mm -hmm. It's it's He says that there are two methods, one of which is the one that you've just referred to, um, which is given in a different place. So this shows, um, uh, so when he says, yes, attain the magical memory, that's one difficult way to prove reincarnation because at least it, con it connects your your own chain of memories with a chain of memories that necessarily extends beyond the bounds of your own life. The other way to do it is to do astral travel. Um, and this, he says, is easier. To me, it seems a little bit more dubious. But by having experiences in a body of light um, that are, you know, more and more vivid experiences, deeper and deeper experiences, um, the body of light starts to seem like a more real thing to you, a component of your being. And so the fragility of your material body, the idea that you might one day get hit by a bus or have a heart attack, um, seems to be less problematic because the body of light is not subject to these sorts of material concerns. Uh, to, to me, I, I find this difficult because like it's almost the same as saying there's no material basis for the mind therefore the mind is not related to the body or there is a material basis for the mind but it's subtler and so if the body dies the mind must go on the astral body is just another thing that has either no material basis or a different material basis 
that can go that could hypothetically go on after the death of the body but i see no reason why it necessarily goes on after the death of the body yeah it, it seems like it could be it could be rooted in the body for nourishment for context for any number of reasons and that if the body dies that that could cease to mm -hmm. exist too or at least decompose slowly the way you're just as a, uh, another way of conceptualizing it um uh i would uh, throw out there this idea that it's a matter of identification so uh in the same way as an analogy if you were driving a car or playing a video game I like the video game analogy where, you know, if, if you're first getting used to playing a particular video game, you've got to think about what your fingers are doing on the controller and that sort of thing. And then as you get really good with it, you get to a point where you're no longer conscious of the controller. You're just making the character on the screen or whatever's going on. You're controlling that. You become that. You're, it's like an extension of yourself into that, just like when you're driving a car. When you're first learning to drive a car, you have to make every little move, be conscious of every little decision. But then when you get really to a, a comfort zone with it, you are you are the car. You're, that becomes your identity. Um, looked at in that light, we could think of it as your body, your physical body, is you're so identified with it that there's no separation. So um, through a lot of these meditation practices and uh, um, magical practices and that sort of thing, you're learning to step away from that firm identification so that you recognize it as an identification and not actually literally the same thing as your consciousness. So I'm not saying that this is the, the solution to the problem. It's a different angle of approach in order to uh, look at it in a different light. Yeah, I think that's right. The It still doesn't answer the question of whether or not that consciousness will go on. Um, in fact, uh, when it comes to this idea of that, that apparently looks like reincarnation, um, I, I, lately I've been conceptualizing things in terms of the will being, or I guess I should say, as the individual essentially being better described as a pattern so that this pattern isn't just your physical body but extends within and without that physical body so your your environment you are this pattern that's continuing through your life and that pattern will continue after your life as well in some form and you can see that in a way that's undeniable. It doesn't necessarily mean that your consciousness is going to be riding along with that. Your sense of a self is not necessarily going to carry forward in that, but it does give a different spin on the subject. In the text, it talks about uh, as a necessary part of the astral work. It doesn't just say do astral work and then you have an astral body, therefore you live forever. Um, it says that uh, it talks all about these impassable gates and how the impassable gates become passable as you get more practice and deeper phases of initiation or something and then um as you are able to expand your sphere of influences more and more to explore subtler and subtler astral realms this idea of uh reincarnation is one of the things that sort of bubbles up and becomes real to you and so I may be parsing it incorrectly by saying just because I have a body of light, therefore my body of light is 
immortal or unattached from my physical body or something. There, there may be something more going on in, in these discoveries that goes unspoken in this text just because... Uh, well, that's one of the, the challenges the, just, of it. Just because the, the, the idea is to do it, not Yeah, to, uh, exactly. It's, it's really emphasizing, he specifically says, uh, going by experience and not calculation and reason, mm-hmm. uh, reasoning out and that sort of thing. So, so part of, part of the, an- like a big part of the answer to these questions is going to come from direct experience rather than simply theorizing. Is this where he talks about subtler modes of doing the same thing? There be moreover many other modes of attaining the apprehension of true life. And these two following are of much value in breaking up the ice of your mortal error in the vision of your being. And of these, the first is the constant contemplation of the identity of love and death. And the understanding of the dissolution of the body as an act of love done upon the body of the universe. As also it is written at length in our holy books. I thought that was kind of an interesting... Uh, yeah, this is very good. Uh, this is what I was mentioning earlier about the the hunger, love being defined as a, a hunger of two opposites to unite with each other. So seeing the universe as this loving thing that's hungry for you, that uh, that wants to be part of you by consuming you. Uh, this, I think, just seems... This seems seems true to me. This seems like uh, even materially, like you know, the material of the body isn't destroyed. It's dissolved and subsumed and expanded. And the the romance of that idea is something that that, mm-hmm. that hits me. I'm glad I happened to read that just now because I I don't want that to slip by us. This is one of those things that I think. I, I don't know if it had a huge impact on me on reading through it the first time around, but in stopping on that phrase, the idea of understanding the dissolution of the body as an act of love done upon the body of the universe is a really beautiful way to engage with the concept of your own death. Um, for you and I sitting here, for you and I sitting here, we're we're both kind of uh, um, <laughs> well, we're getting towards middle age, I guess. <laughs> um, so, but I I don't know about you, but I've uh, in recent years been more and more specifically thinking about the idea of death a little bit prematurely, I think. But uh, just generally speaking, I've tried to really confront the subject and the realization that I will die because it's important. And it's so easy to avoid the subject. But uh, thinking of it in that sense is a really beautiful image. The second of these lesser modes is the practice of mental apprehension and analysis of ideas, mainly as I have already taught you. This is the what I read on in the last section about uh, being removed from your uh, emotional reactions to things. Um, but with the especial emphasis in choice of things naturally repulsive, in particular death itself and its phenomena ancillary. By this, he means the phenomena of the degradation of the corpse, for example. Um, And then he mentions the uh, Buddhist meditating on the ten impurities and the ten cases of death of decomposition. Um, and, And so you remove the natural horror to what consequence? Let's see if I can find it. 
Know this, that every idea of every sort becomes unreal, fantastic, and most manifest illusion, if it be subject to the persistent investigation with concentration. So by have, doing this sort of ma meditation on the idea of death, the same meditation that re resulted in not-self principle on, in the last chapter, now we see that this, this sort of idea of death and decomposition and, de and degradation and, and, and violence, like some of the Buddhist death meditations are quite gruesome, that these things start to become plastic, unreal, remote, and there's, I guess, a, a, a removal of the fear of them by... Mm -hmm. So it seems sort of like one of those things where you're focusing on a smell or a taste, and the more you focus on it, the more it kind of becomes evasive. This is particularly easy to attain in the case of all bodily impressions, because of all material things, and especially those of which we are first conscious, namely our own bodies, are the grossest and most unnatural of all falsities. For there is in us all latent the light wherein no error may endure, and it already teaches our instincts to reject, first of all, those veils which are most closely wrapped about it. So imagining your own bodily death is somehow really vividly wrong. <laughs> that could be the, <laughs> the abjection principle <laughs> coming into play, but Crowley says it's, it's something more profound than that. Well, it's an interesting idea to think about it, like going back to the idea of identification. So identification with your physical body uh, tends to make you buy into the illusion of the physical body. Um, and in the same way, this seems to be the process of revealing that illusion for what it is. This is not... Uh, reincarnation is not the most important part of this, I don't think. Remember, we're talking about the... Uh, uh, the idea that these four emanations of the will uh, give us the power to reflect back and to access the sort of prime universal current. Mm. Uh, so maybe this section on joy, did I mark out any quotations to read from this section on joy? I did not. What if I just read... From the top of paragraph 12. Now then, returning from these states of being, and in the return also there is a mystery of joy, you will be weaned from the milk of darkness of the moon and made partaker of the sacrament of the wine that is the blood of the sun. Yea, at the first there may be shock and conflict, for the old thought persists by force of habit. It is for you to create by repeated act, the true right habit of this consciousness of the life which abideth in light. And that is easy if your will be strong, for the true life is so much more vivid and quintessential than the false that, as I rudely estimate, one hour of the former makes an impression on the memory equal to that of a year of the latter. One single experience in duration, it may be but a few seconds of terrestrial time, is sufficient to destroy the belief in the reality of our vain life on earth. Um, so these methods of, of meditation and, and, and of magic, the astral travel is sort of strictly a magical exercise. They, they do this thing of, of proving the continuity of life, the conscious continuity of existence, but they also show the mystery of 
joy that life is a persistent, dynamic uh, change, something about the principle of change um, and how we can be hungry for change, enjoy change, that our identity principle is actually reinforced by constant change. And, and the life in this dynamic, dualistic universe is a thing at which to be rejoiced. Um, and even if we only get that insight for a second, it's a big insight. It's a profound insight that stays with us, hopefully, long enough um, to allow us to repeat the experiment and, and get back there again. And I think this is going to be touched on a lot more in when it comes to light. Now, did you want to move on to light or uh, anything uh, you wanted to catch before we do? Yeah, I've got about 20 minutes, so hopefully that's <laughs> time to read four pages. Okay, this is a bit <laughs> in this mood, did I interrupt myself in the writing of this my little book? And for two days and nights, sleeplessly have I made consideration, wrestling vehemently with my spirit, lest by haste or carelessness I might fail towards you. But I got 20 minutes, so let's do this <laughs> thing. Uh that's very good. That's exactly sort of where I began to. What's the first thing to talk about? That light is an ineffable force like the Tao, implied by motion and change, realized by life. Um, so where's this quotation? Oh, yes. In this, as in all other efforts to name it, it is the root of every falsity and misapprehension, since all words imply some duality. Therefore, though I call it light, it is not light, nor absence of light. Many also have sought to describe it by contradictions, since through transcendent negation of all speech it may by some natures be attained. Also by images and symbols have men striven to express it, but always in vain. Yet those who were ready to apprehend the nature of this light have understood by sympathy. And so shall it be with you who read this little book, loving it. We're coming right back to the beginning of our conversation about um, the, uh, the distance from the text by preconception. Uh, you must read this little book, loving it. That is hungry to unite with a different perspective mm -hmm. than you already have. Um, back again to this section we read about the relationship of the aspirant to the master, sacrificing personal choice for a more profound will. And, uh, and even though in the first section it says, by light we see, which makes it seem like literal light, here he's making it clear that he's not talking about literal light, but some uh, metaphysical principle akin to maybe, well, the Tao is movement, so the Tao is law, the Tao is, is will. This would be the day, the gate of life from through which the Tao is manifested somehow. Uh, so light is this. Uh, it's probably wrong to map this one to one, the two books one to one on each other, but light is this ineffable principle that creates manifestation somehow. So it then becomes more clear how light creates life. You know, it's not just that there is light by which we see, therefore we need something that does the seeing. Light is, uh, is, is one of the principles of grounds of existence. So if life exists, then it comes out of this condensed light. 
the, in this chapter, we're also introduced to the idea that uh, each of these, each of these subjects—light, liberty, love, life—they each have a corresponding book from the holy books. Whereas also they they are manifest in each of the holy books as well. But we have for light, liber ararita, for liberty, liber tetragrammaton, which pertains to the the Tao and and Lao Tzu's uh, um, Tao Te Ching. I have made this mistake before, and you corrected me, so I don't feel I don't feel uncomfortable correcting you. It's trigrammaton, threefold, oh. not fourfold. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I appreciate that because it's um, about the uh, the trigrams which make up the uh, Taoist hexagrams, mm-hmm. uh, the the divination tool. Uh, it's not about the fourfold name, the four letter name of God. Yes, and that's. Uh, I was thinking about that text actually. As a matter of fact, the trigrammaton uh, would be an interesting one to delve into in conjunction with the Tao Te king or even with this uh, talking about this subject but it's a little bit outside of our range mm-hmm. at the moment and then for love we have in Libra 65 cordis kinti serpente which is uh, the heart girt with a serpent and uh, for life we have Liber liberi which is book seven all these books also concern all these four gifts for in the end you will see how every one is inseparable from every other one again we're finishing here with something you were saying to start with about how the the principles sort of bleed into each other. And we also have each of these uh, rays or emanations attributed to or given uh, a form of evil. And evil is expressly a relative term within Thelema, mm-hmm. which is something that I'm really interested in uh, discussing at some point as well in its own right. But uh, um, yeah, so we have for will, all that hinders the execution of the will. Uh for love, we have all that which tends to prevent the union of any two things. For life, we have all that which is not impersonal and universal. And for light, restriction is the failure to solve the great equation, and later to prefer one expression or phase of the universe to the other. And I mention these just to get them all in there, uh, just so that we don't completely miss out on that but uh, i know there's a lot to unpack there if we have the time to do it so in paragraph four of this um paragraph have, four you don't say we have uh, um <laughs> light related to lots of different important thelemic numbers uh which we won't do now i think these are perennial study for Thelema people, uh, 56 being the number of new, and then uh, divi- divided uh, 0.12 as being Wheat Hadith Rahorquit, uh, the number 93 and 31. Here it's funny that he says the Hebrew uh, for 31 is la, which means no or not, or it's a negation principle. He doesn't mention that it's al for God, but, <laughs> uh, but the negation principle has been important all through this book. And uh, the interesting thing here being that he's stripping it down again to the numbers because mm-hmm. he's having difficult expressing these things. So the idea being simplifying by putting them into number and that getting it closer to the essence of the idea. Let me start reading at paragraph five. I have already written to you of how in the will of love light ariseth as the secret part of life. These qualities are become part 
of the universal life, which proceedeth infinitely with the enjoyment of the will and of love as inherent therein, these things therefore in their perfection have lost their names and their natures. Yet these were the substance of life, its father and mother, and without their operation and impact, life itself would gradually cease its pulsations. So I read that again back at the beginning of this chapter, but I think we can deal with it more fully now because as we've as we've gone through, you know, we've started with uh, with will and light, uh, love and life are the tools which with we have been able to apprehend the nature of this will and the final em uh, emanation we're dealing with now is the light, which sort of leads back to this to this first principle and in in, in understanding the other three. Uh, what does he call them? Not blessings, but the other three goods or something like that. Secret that goodnesses. We, we secret goodnesses. Thank you. Uh, um, we start to have access to this more beautiful, ecstatic form of existence and, and a relationship with the light that is the substance of the universe. Yea, I would have you consider that this equality or identity of equation between all things and no thing is most absolute so that you will remain no more in one than you did in the other and you will understand this great mystery very easily in the light of those other experiences which you will have enjoyed wherein motion and rest change and stability and many other subtle oppos opposites have been redeemed to identity by the force of your holy meditation uh, redeemed to identity. Uh, this also was a thing in the Tao Te Ching about the, the whole thesis came from these pairs of opposites and how the opposite ends of the spectrum bled back into each other. Um, here it's not that you strive for something you radically don't want in order to attain, attain its opposite, um, but that, that two opposite things are united into an ecstasy that uh, that destroy themselves in a, in a way that's useful. People sometimes point to, to Hegel when uh, they look at Crowley, and Hegel's main thing is, um, if you know nothing else about Hegel, which I know nothing else about Hegel, <laughs> uh, you know about the dialectic, which is thesis, antithesis, synthesis, that two opposite ideas inform each other and become a new idea which is better because it's the union of the two opposites. And people, people, uh, this is, it goes through all, all of Hegel's writing. His theory of history is like this, that history is somehow predictive. If you can understand the swing between movements of thesis and movements of antithesis, the next movement should be a synthesis of the previous two. Uh, um, but Crowley doesn't talk about it in precisely this way. He does look at pairs of ideas an awful lot. But in duty, it says that his um, that that the duty of brothers is to fight each other, like in the book of the law, as brothers fight ye, to bring out saliently the difference between the two ideas. He never wants to come to synthesis. He wants to understand the two uh, different ideas. And in this, the 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 union of opposites produces not a synthesis, but uh, again, sort of nothing this ecstatic oblivion that we've been driving to yeah i, I think that's uh, i think uh, it i get the sense that it kind of 
produces both things simultaneously, like the uh, synthesis and this other thing. I think that's one of the things he talks about with uh, Rahurakuit and Hurparkrat being twins. They're both produced in the same moment, one being the synthesis and the other being this ineffable something else. Uh, it's a part of the formula of Tetragrammaton, as I understand it, or the way that he describes it. You know, I think it's interesting because in the Tao Te Ching, uh, the, there was all this stuff made about how ineffable the Tao was. Um, and it is difficult to think of a going, a movement, a kinetic force uh, removed from any object to be moved, like how this could be primary and other things subordinate. Uh, that is that is difficult to understand. And here we have the same thing, a, a, a will that is the prime mover and, and, you know, objects to be moved and the objects desire each other. So there's love and, uh, and, and, and the freedom of objects to move in and around each other and to have conflicts and stuff, uh, all expressing will. Um, uh, but there's this, there's still this principle of ineffability, but it's between the, the, the primary, the willing thing, you know, the, it's between the law, which is fundamental and the other three secret goods, um, which we have some sense of, there's this ineffable light, which is attained to an intermediary between, which is another secret good between the fundamental principle and the way we perceive our existence. And it's it's almost like in this final chapter, we realize that it's the light is the thing we're, we're aspiring to, not the, not the law. Because even though the law is prime mover and fundamental and the, the the big source, the big God above everything, um, that's been with us all along. It's the life which abideth in light, yea, the life which abideth mm -hmm. in light, um, that is the that that is to what we aspire. Yeah, I have a sense of this uh, light. I don't know if this is correct or not, but this is uh, my association with it as being um, the more in line you are with these things, the more that manifests, the more you feel it coming through and that sort of thing. Just anecdotally, I had a, an experience once when I was, uh, uh, sick as a dog. Um, I think I might've had food poisoning at the time and I was just feeling awful, but I was at work. And, uh, at the time I was working in a music store at the counter. Uh, luckily nobody comes in in the mornings. So I, I would go and lie down in the <laughs> back room, but then I would also, I was working on playing piano quite a bit at the time. And I was actually starting to, starting to really get the hang of, uh, playing some Beethoven pieces and some, uh, Chopin pieces and stuff. What happened was when I, I'd start playing while I was feeling sick as a dog, and I'd click into this state where it was really resonating and all the pain literally fell away. It was magical. And it was like, in fact, not just the pain, but everything fell away. It was like going into this extreme tunnel vision where um, I understood some of the things. I, I mean, this is more looking back on it now. Uh, I, I could understand the type of experience that's often referred to in these kinds of meditative states. 
and I'm not saying that this is exactly what this is talking about, but it does help me to wrap my head around some of the concepts involved, including the idea that when you attain to certain states like this light, time and space no longer have meaning. You're sort of beyond that. And I think it even says, like, time is accessible. <laughs> All time is accessible from that state and that sort of thing. So, um, but it's just anecdotally kind of an interesting take on it. The Dante King had that chapter we read on contempt for all circumstances uh because you know either you would have things and lose them or you would not have things uh so in order to eliminate your hang-ups you just think of everything as contemptuous and then you don't have hang-ups in relation to objects or social status or or whatever and here it talks about uh, the the condition of spiritual dryness, where in the chapter on love, he says that to not just to be in the condition of being unloved, but of not even wanting to be loved, of of being so like sort of spiritually dry that you're craving for the passion seems to have gone out of life, and this is something you're people experience rut. for brief windows, right? Um, and the use of spiritual dryness, he says, is that it's a real cleaver that removes extraneous ideas. Because if you're gross, if you don't want to like things, the the things that start to fall away for the strong person, he says, not for other people, the things that start to fall away are actually the extraneous things, and you're left with only a desire for the highest as. Um, as something as a worthy goal you know you're everything else that you don't even want to love it seems meaningless by you realize that it's only meaningless by comparison to this one pure aspiration and there's something about being sick that that does the same work of carving off hang-ups I don't care about that awkward conversation I had with that person right now before because I feel like garbage and they can just deal with my attitude <laughs> or, you know, the this note isn't perfect, uh, my hand position is wrong, uh, but like, every no, I don't care because I feel like garbage. <laughs> and uh, and there is a way in which the, the sickness, if you're an artist, uh, the, the sickness allows for the purity of the art to come through because so much of the other stuff gets turned down by comparison to just how poorly you feel. Uh, so that's a, yeah. And, 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 and I do think it's some version of what's being pointed at here. Uh, ecstasy, joy, spontaneity. And being this, connected to that golden thread, yeah. which will come up in Lieber Zadi, the idea of like, you've lost the golden thread that can pertain to that idea of spiritual dryness as well, where it's like you just feel like, you know, what's the point in any of this? But it's the joy, right? The the, the, the chapter on life talked about, uh, when we, we glanced over it too quickly, but talks about how joy is this key idea that, that maybe connects us to the understanding of light, the elucidation of, of, of personal will and related to divine will. And it's ecstatic joy. Yeah. Uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> this was another wonderful talk. I can't believe we did the whole thing. Thanks for listening. Look for Toronto Thalima on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Watch for events in the city. And join us again in the darkly splendid abodes. <laughs> <laughs>